Hi everyone, it's Kino here. Thanks so much for joining me on Seek Up, the yoga inspiration show. I am so grateful for you and grateful to you for tuning in and sharing this journey with me. I am overwhelmed with how many people come up to me and say that they're really enjoying this type of communication, teaching, and sharing. So thank you so much for being a part of this journey of yoga, this journey of spirituality, this journey of mindfulness, this journey of seeking wisdom. More than anything else, this is meant to support the seeker's journey, meant to support you on the path. If you find this series of teaching really beneficial, the way that you can support this series is to become a member of the Om Stars yoga community and practice. We have decided to make this series free and available to everyone so that no matter where you are in the world, you can get the teachings that will hopefully provide sustenance for the seeker's journey. And for those of you that can become a member and give your support, please know that I appreciate it. And I'll see you on the mat real soon. David, I'd love to just uh, introduce uh, everyone to this talk. Um, this is maybe, we haven't done too many of these here on Ohm Stars. So just welcome everyone to this live talk. We have the honor of having the esteemed and Really awesome teacher, David Sensen, who's going to be our guest today. And um, we are going to talk about some things obviously related to yoga, life, everything. We'll see where we get into. And many of you have maybe already practiced with David somewhere or perhaps have been inspired by his book and his really deep and meaningful contribution to the Ashtanga yoga practice. And this is a unique opportunity because if we were just having a discussion for, say, a podcast, you wouldn't have the opportunity to join live or to submit your questions. So if questions come up, please feel welcome to type them into the chat. We already have a few questions that have come in on, um, you know, on, on other channels. So this is the unique opportunity that we get to kind of share space in this way. Um, so David, just welcome. And thanks for being a guest on this live talk. We are super excited to have you. I'm happy to be here. And Kino, maybe you and I should just ask the questions. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> That'd be more fun. <laughs> and we could choose people to answer. Yeah. Right. <laughs> now they're getting nervous. Some of them are starting yeah. to turn red. Let's right flip this whole thing. <laughs> I like that actually. Maybe we'll try maybe we try that for the next one. We're gonna give people some yeah. warning. That's right. <laughs> no one will no one will sign up then. No one will sign. You and I'll just be asking each other questions. <laughs> yeah, they might sign up for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well. David, I'd love to kind of um, jump the conversation off with uh, like a bigger picture question that's kind of in everybody's mind. Um, you know, that Sharat was just here in Miami teaching for two weeks. And one of the, the, the topics and the themes that seems to be really prevalent within our Ashtanga community, in which I think you are a pioneer, is making the practice accessible. 
And this is something that in your books, you offer, you know, different options for the poses. And this is something that maybe you've taken some slack for in the past. And this is something that now everybody seems to be talking about. And people are asking questions about how can I rather than, you know, how do I, how, rather than how can I just force my hip to open? People are asking more, like more subtle questions of is, you know, how do I adapt the practice for my body or for my students? So maybe we could start talking about like your years of experience in the practice and, you know, how you've seen accessibility evolve and kind of maybe what, how you got inspired to start with including the different options that are in your book that have helped so many people. Well, you know, you're totally right. I did get a lot of flack for that when I first came up with this idea in the book and the alternatives. And uh, any of you who have been in my workshops and heard me tell these stories, when I first came out with the videos, even, I didn't have permission to do that. And this is odd, but Richard Freeman and I were the first Ashtanga people coming out with these videos. And we were getting a lot of flack for that because it was thought you cannot have a videotape of practice and it has to be in person. And I called my friend David Williams and said, oh, David, I'm coming up with these videos. Man, I think people are going to shoot me down. And David talks like this. He goes, well, David, you know, if you stick your head above the crowd, somebody's bound to throw a tomato. <laughs> but that was true with the alternatives as well, because there was no such thing as alternatives. And I felt, well, I want to make it accessible. And I'll, I'll tell you what, I guess my inspiration, you could say, for this is that first trip to Mysore in 1977. I watched Patabi Joyce work with a quadriplegic boy. He could only move his head. Mm-hmm. And Guruji would take and set him on the floor there, or his family would just place him on the floor and leave. Like he didn't have a choice to go to the yoga class or not. And Patabi Joyce would stand over him, put him in the shape of an asana and have him breathe. So I said, well, he didn't say you can't do yoga. Mm-hmm. And so that means we have to be careful as teachers that we are not turning the practice into some kind of an elite fitness program just for people with two arms, two legs, and a strong, healthy body. So that led me to think about making it accessible while at the same time honoring the the system. And I Mm -hmm. think it's important. Mm -hmm. That ties into a a question that many students have and something that a student submitted over some of the other channels, which is, how do I know when to push? And how do I know when to back off, you know? And, and so this is something that comes up. I mean, in, in my practice, in my personal practice too, it's like, gosh, am I being lazy today? Or do I really need to grab that strap and do a different option for today? You know, when to push, when to back off. And there's definitely been some times when I've been feeling like, oh, I don't want to practice today. And then I get on the mat and push myself a little and it turns out to be a great practice. And then there are other times when I feel like, wow, this is going to be an awesome day. And I get on my mat and I'm like, oh, pass that block over here. I think uh, we're going to dial it down instead. So I feel like I didn't have that sensitivity when I first started. So what do you think about that? Do you go through days also where you're like, okay, I'm going to push and see what happens. And then, you know, then there's days where you're like, yeah, let me just do some of the different variations instead of, you know, pushing or, or, or how do you navigate that both for yourself? And then also for student, like student come up and says, I feel really tired today. What should I do? You know, that's a, that's kind of a big question. So it's trial and error. 
and and on one hand, the, the student wants all this advice, like, tell me what to do. Yeah. But I think that a good teacher creates thinking students and the best of teachers create students that don't need them anymore. Mm-hmm. It means you instill in them the ability to think and to feel their body because I can't know what you're feeling in your body. And so each of us should be the experts in this vehicle in which we reside 24 hours a day. And so it takes some time to figure out. And 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 you might go to extremes like, oops, I did too much. And I, I describe it as like, let's say you, you practice a whole bunch and it's like you you went to some yoga party and it seemed like a great party and you're in there and you're you're you know dancing and moving and woohoo and Monday morning you wake up with the yoga hangover. Well you have to you have to listen to that and realize well you can OD on yoga and so take the result how you feel the next day to determine was it a good good thing or not. But the challenge is every day is different. The, the formula you used yesterday, maybe that was the day you're really pushing and you felt great. Use the same thing the next day and you, you feel lousy. So it does take a long time to develop the, the personal intuition to understand what do I need to do today? There was a, a woman that um, said she had a, a formula for success in her practice. And it was this. She kept her mat on a shelf. She had to take the mat down, roll it out, stand on it, and take one breath. Inhale, exhale, and put the mat back on the shelf. If she did that much, she felt it was a success. The beauty of that formula is never did she only take one breath. Because as you said, on those days when you're like, I don't feel like practicing. Well, if the practice represents 90 minutes of just this full-on thing, yeah. But if you say it just represents this moment, so you get on there, and as long as you're here, you say, well, maybe I could just inhale, raise my arms, and you might do 10 or 15 minutes, and it keeps the thread of connection, and you feel good. Like a psychological game, right? Because so many Ashtanga Yoga students are overachievers, really tough on themselves, and struggle with, you know, the inner dialogue and the inner critic. So, you know, in in to be able to say, gosh, well, the practice just is okay if it's light. That brings up so much anxiety for so many Ashtangis who think like, well, I'm not good enough if I don't do that 90 minutes. Well, I'm not good enough if I don't you know, do my backbends today. And so then there's the psychological struggle, you know, did you ever face that and had to kind of conquer that and, and kind of what helped you let go of the perfectionism and the, the overachiever attitude? I would say that some of that attitude is instilled in the student's mind by the teacher mm. because there's overzealous teachers and I don't fault them because they're fired up about it. Mm-hmm. Whoa. And they want to share it with everybody. And yeah, more is better. And the whole idea of you got to do every day and this much. And so they instill that. And then it feeds this inner dialogue and this guilt and all that. So in the early days of my practice, I mean, I started Ashtanga when I was, wow, I'm just thinking it's it's been (laughs) 50 years, 50 years. Wow. And so Went from the ages, you know, 16 into my 20s, I was just like a Labrador dog, just like, yeah. nobody was <laughs> telling me to do that stuff. I just wanted it. And even if I was sore, I didn't care because it was just like, 
it was like I, if I went surfing all day, my arms were all sore. Well, it was worth it, you know, because I had this fun and it was fun. Later, you know, you get tired of smelling like tiger bone. <laughs> and, you, and I start going, well, why am I doing this? And the day that for each of us, the day we ask that question, why am I doing this yoga? In my opinion, that's the day we started the yoga. Mm. Prior to that, it was entertainment. Yeah, it, but when we ask why am I doing this, the answer that you come up with will be the your formula. The goal, in my opinion, should be to have more energy after practice than we started with. Mm. The longer I'm around this, and the more I, I teach it and practice, I really view it as medicine. Right, this is our medicine. So when I was that young, enthusiastic Labrador kid, yeah. The medicine I wanted and needed was like two hours and, and practice again in the afternoon. And why just jump back? Let's do a handstand between everything. And that was the medicine that was feeding me. Then later in life, you as, as things are evolving and you have something else to do in your day besides yoga, <laughs> then you realize, well, the medicine is something else. Rather than can I spend more time on the mat? I'm actually trying to figure out, can I spend less time on the mat and get the same juice? So it's, it's an evolutionary process, but each person has to go through it. And as a teacher, it's, it's, we have to understand and, and facilitate the phase that that student is in at that moment. Mm -hmm. And so the enthusiastic one, I don't want to stomp that down and tamp it down because I understand it, but I also want to keep them safe mm -hmm. and then say, Hey, it's not fair later to say Ashtanga is too hard, but you've been pushing yourself like that on your own, right? It's like me going to a food buffet and eating everything. Go, that food is mean. <laughs> but then the idea of, well, maybe, am I being lazy? Do not practice this yoga out of guilt. Don't practice because someone else told you if you don't do it, you're bad or if I miss some days of practice, I'll freak out because I know I'm going to come back to this because it's what ultimately feeds me. And it's the medicine. Without it, life is harder. So I think it's it's okay to just lighten up. And so what? Yeah, maybe you are lazy today because that's what you needed. Elite athletes do not push themselves 100% every day. They take rest days, sometimes like my wife, Shelly, was a professional dancer. They don't push to their limit every day. There's days where they just mark it. They just move through the space and other days where it's, it's more. So mm -hmm. I think we have to give more responsibility to students to start feeling their body and make choices and say it's okay. Instill that it, it, there's no reason to feel guilty. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's an oxymoron. Like people are feeling bad about doing their yoga. <laughs> <laughs> when you put it like that, it is a real oxymoron. It's like, gosh, you know, you feel bad about doing your practice. Well, you did it. Like there's all these people that don't do it at all. You know, I mean, I start to feel like that there are definitely students that are maybe in the transition from the phase of being a Labrador to Maybe they're transitioning out of that life into being reborn into, into a different being. And then they sit with the schism of what it once was. 
you know? And then they look back and are like, well, you know, like two years ago, or, um, you know, some people are typing in the chat, say before COVID or before I had this, or before I had a baby, before my mom got sick, I had all this energy and enthusiasm. And then they, it's like they, it's like, it's like this kind of nostalgia for the past. And sometimes I find myself as a teacher coming up to a student and then seeing them pushing and saying, Hey, it's okay today. You don't need to go to your limit. It's okay. And I'm not going to take any poses away from you and you'll still get a new pose at some moment too. And, and then I think that's a big shift in the Ashtanga community. Have you noticed the shifts kind of like that as well? Maybe embracing the change from the Labrador state, which I love Labradors. Like we're not, you know, I absolutely love that. If I got a dog, I would probably get some kind of retriever um, and, you know, or, or some, or, you know, hopefully an adopted one. But, uh, you know, my, my, for people that don't know, my parents were, um, uh, dog breeders when I was growing up. So, and they took dogs to dog shows and everything. So that's a, that's a whole separate conversation. But if, um, you know, if, if, if we're in that stage from being this kind of enthusiastic Labrador puppy, and then we had a lifestyle change, a lot of people actually lose their enthusiasm for the practice. They come back and they're constantly comparing themselves about who they used to be and what the practice used to be. Or say someone comes and does like a training, maybe with you, David, people come and do trainings with you and you're in a hotel room teaching somewhere and they get this inspiration with your presence and then you leave and then they go, and then they're back to their home practice and they feel kind of ho-hum about it. So what, um, what, what changes have you seen in the Ashtanga community that kind of support that transition? And what can you say to people that are coming back to their practice, but don't have that enthusiasm anymore? Maybe they're not guilty, but they're just feeling like, mm, and then they, they do it, but they don't have that, you know, that, that inspiration that once was. So you can also liken the practice to taking care of our teeth. <laughs> if I don't floss my teeth and brush my teeth, my mouth tastes yucky and I get tooth decay. Yoga is like mental floss. <laughs> yeah. It's not, is it exciting to brush our teeth? It's, it's not like, woohoo, I got a new brush and a new flavor. I can't wait to brush my teeth. You do it because it just becomes part of what you do. And, and I have this image that it's like, a, in the beginning of practice, if you're starting from zero, it's easy to make progress. And it's easy to be inspired when you're progressing in anything. You're getting better. You're, you're becoming more, you know, better. You're becoming more flexible, stronger. You can feel and see the results. And it's like this, this spectrum of, of flying up like that. And then we hit this dreaded plateau. And it feels like nothing's changing. And you're there for it like months, years, and not, and then you feel a change, like <laughs> they start getting worse. And at that moment, that's the, where the frustration starts happening. You're saying like, I used to be able to do that. I used to be able to do that. Now I can't do that. And so people say, well, why should I do this? And I was just say, well, then don't do it. Go away. Stop practicing. What? I go, yeah, stop practicing. Don't do it anymore. And if you feel better, you got your answer. Mm. But you may discover that, wow, that life on the plateau was actually a good thing. <laughs> but it became so commonplace, I forgot how good I felt because it's just an everyday thing. The yoga, there's that progress, but 98% of our life is going to just be on this. 
it's not like every day you practice, it's a little more, you know, one more step to samadhi. A lot of it is this, this plateau, and uh, then there's the up and down. But life on the plateau is reality. And that's, and that's where we can understand that by going away from it, that wasn't so bad up there on the plateau. The view was kind of nice, you know. Without the yoga, to me, life is harder. Mm-hmm. I'm just like a caveman. Mm. Do yoga. Mm. Feel good. Mm. No yoga. Don't feel good. Do yoga. <laughs> Keep it simple, you guys. This is your practice. For 100% of our life of yoga, it is called a practice. It is never called the performance. You're not going to have some judges at a, a table on the side of the room during your Mysore practice, and they're holding up you know, numbers, giving you a score. Mm-hmm. This is for us to feel good. And, and I will also say that one thing in the Ashtanga system can feed this idea of what it, what is pro- progress and advance because it's called primary, intermediate, advanced. So it's like, well, I want to be advanced, right? Mm-hmm. But what I've come to realize is standing in Samastitihi, you know, doing Janushirshasana or Dvipadashirshasana, one of them is not more advanced than the other. The potential for our self-realization is in every posture and every breath. It's never in the next one. Otherwise, as we went through series, all of a sudden, wow, people that were doing second series, they'd be more well-adjusted and they'd be like mellow and, and, and you know, and people in advanced series, they'd be like, you know, the Dalai Lama or something. But it's, these are just tools and, and it, the system keeps us entertained because we think we're doing this to progress, but ultimately it's just getting us back on the mat. David, I love the short forms I do. Yeah. It's okay to progress through that stuff, but it's, it's a paradox, you know, mm-hmm. check it out. We, if, if someone is on the outside looking in a window at a bunch of people doing Ashtanga yoga and they don't know what it is, what are they going to think? Look at that, that, that gymnastics class. Look at those, that physical fitness class. The paradox is that we are doing all of this physical stuff with our ultimate goal to be to understand that we are not this physical stuff. Mm-hmm. That is a paradox. It's and- a paradox, but, but this is something that is tangible. So we use the tool. Mm -hmm. It becomes a problem when we think we are the tool. Mm -hmm. Or it becomes a problem when we wrap our self-identity around an asana or a physical ability or an asana ability. It's when we start. It's no different than if if suddenly you, you have enough money and you're driving some really fancy car and you're judging somebody that's driving a car that's not great. Or you're like puffed up because you've got some designer label and you spent $700 for this blouse that somebody else was shopping at, you know, the gap 
And now you're better because you have this expensive label. So asana has become like that too. People, they put this importance. (laughs) And so if we can understand that it's all the same, but you got to take your own journey and there's nothing wrong with being enthusiastic to get the asanas and being a Labrador dog and and all those things. Every phase of it is good because it's a process. and, And as a teacher, this is just my opinion here. It's not for the teacher to direct your life. My only goal is to encourage, to inspire, and to facilitate practice so that you can gain a relationship with the guru, which is not a person. The guru is the practice and what you're getting from that. And your relationship with that guru is where you will gain the depth and the tools. But it's scary because we want a person to be the guru that's going to hold our hand and guide us. And we ask a question, they answer the questions for us. But yoga means you got to come to those answers on your own, through your endeavor, through your breath, through your trial, through your errors, through the the frustrations, through the the feeling bad because you didn't practice enough and (laughs) then overdoing it. That's the process. Yeah, That, that is the journey. So it's, then we feel bad about feeling bad. <laughs> yeah. We feel bad about judging ourselves. And so we judge ourselves about judging ourselves. Right. Like a double negative. The day that we can gain a little sense of humor about this and go, it's, it's, it's yoga, man. It, it, it's, it's a tool and we're all doing the best we can. Mm-hmm. We're doing the best we can and we don't get it right. You know, a lot of times we, we mess up. You know, Svadhyaya self-study, you know, if we had the courage, we look inside there, it's not all butterflies and rainbows, you know, and and so we have to stop and, and, you know, take stock of things, what's going on, and the system of Ashtanga evolves. When Patabi Joyce was alive, so Kino, imagine when, when Guruji's alive, one day you went, if you went one day to class with him. Mm-hmm. The next day you went to class with Manju. Mm -hmm. The next day you went to class with Saraswati. The next day you went to class with Sharat. And the next day you went to class with his granddaughter, Sharmila. Mm -hmm. You just had five totally different experiences. (laughs) Oh my goodness. (laughs) And that that is the royal family of Ashtanga, yet five of them, totally different experiences. Mm -hmm. And so it's not odd that you and I teach a little differently or Richard and, and Mary teach the way that they do or, you know, whatever it's, it's, it's healthy. Mm-hmm. There's so much in, in everything you've just shared, David, I want to unpack a little bit of it. The first thing that came up in my mind when you were talking about um, the, the kind of false equivalence that we make of thinking that we're better than someone else when we either acquire some material possessions or we acquire some asanas. Um, I re- the, the word that popped into my mind, which was somewhat humorous, was brand name asanas, you know, which are kind of like the yeah. big hits of the asanas, you know? It's like, Vipata Shirshasana yeah. is Prada. Exactly, it's like <laughs> a brand name, right? And, and then Pashimottanasana, like, oh, that's H&M. Exactly. Yeah. Who cares? Right. That's a cheap one. Give it away like candy. No problem. You know, it's on sale regularly. And then, you know, if we, if we make that false equivalence, then, you know, some students may actually need to go and get it to realize that, oh, this didn't make me a better person. 
you know, it's like someone that's like dreamed of having, you know, a, a Prada bag their whole life and then they save up enough money and then they get it and then they realize oh, this didn't make me happy. But some people actually need to go and get it to have that click and realization of, gosh, I, I'm still the same person I was before I put my legs behind my head. And, and, and then to kind of, you know, to, to make that shift, did that shift happen for you at some moment? But one, I want to clarify one. There's nothing wrong with owning a Prada bag. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the possession itself is just an inanimate object. And asana is just a physical shape. Mm-hmm. It's only when we wrap our self-identity around a thing we're driving or wearing or the shape we can make our body. If that's our identity, that's when it becomes problematic. Mm-hmm. And I mean, well, you were saying, did I have a moment where? Yeah, did I, you have to go through that, or were you, uh, I definitely went through that. I mean, I went through know, periods where, like, I I'm definitely identified. All of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing: if your parents, they're speaking their wisdom, and you're the young teenager, and they're going, "Teenager, don't make the mistakes I did. <laughs> you better not do X, Y, Z." What are the first three things you're going to do? X, yeah, Y, and Z. Exactly. Right. So. You just have to let people take their journey Mm -hmm. as a teacher. Because if I had not gone through that journey, I wouldn't have the understanding I have now. Mm -hmm. So you sometimes have to go through hardships or create hardships, make mistakes, endeavor, start, stop. Life is messy. It doesn't just flow along perfectly. Yeah. There's a joke, and actually, Monica at Omstar said, David, you should mention your book. You know, I've got a new book coming out. Yes. This won't blow the whole book, but <laughs> there's a, on, on one of the first pages, it says this. How do you make God laugh? Do you know that joke? Uh-huh. Make God laugh. You tell him your plans. Yeah. <laughs> right? So we have a plan. And Ashtanga is all mapped out. You know, I do this one and this one. I got through every asana of Ashtanga yoga by 1977. Mm-hmm. So imagine if we're always thinking it's in the next asana, what happens the day you get the last asana? You keep thinking it's in the next one, and now you're like, well, there's no more. <laughs> so I freaked out. <laughs> and I started looking everywhere for the answers because I'm like, well, I figured once you got the last asana, it'd be like, our Western linear thinking mind, the eight limbs, yama, niyama, asana, pranayama, prachahara, dhana, dhyana, swani. What limb am I at? Right. <laughs> like, what limb am I at? Can I be certified like fifth limb? You know, <laughs> or <laughs> I just certified a bunch of people here the other day in samadhi. We <laughs> went to a workshop and I went, you're now all authorized, enlightened. <laughs> but then what's going to happen? Even if I had that power, your life's going to go on. So we, we, we march through these, these things, right? And at, at some point, it has to be the, the taste we're getting from it. And so for a while, it, what keeps us going is we think, oh, man, it's, I just want to stand up out of a back band because I can get intermediate series. Great, you get intermediate series, and there's the leg, and and I'm doing that, and I'm huh. now what? Huh. 
that person's in advanced series. <laughs> advanced series people, they're probably happier. You know, the schools are better in the advanced series neighborhood and their asanas are faster and shinier and bigger. And, and you know, so I need to do that. And we keep, so once you get the last one, you got to go back and start looking. And that's when I came up with this understanding of, wow, maybe I missed something back there. So you start, you know, sorting back through the asanas and realize it was never about the asana or the next one. That just was a trick to keep me practicing. But ultimately, we have to come to the realization that it's in the breath we're taking. It's in the asana we are in. It's never in the next one. It has to be in the one you're in, which starts with samastitihi. Set our intention, set our breath. It's a meditation in motion. Take the dosage of medicine you need. Today was it full primary series? Great. Today were you pumping it out and you did full primary and half intermediate? Or was today the day you did Patabi Joyce's minimum of 3A, 3B and the final three? Feel great about both of those choices. Mm -hmm. You used the tool. You took your medicine. Now go out there and make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. That's the goal. Get prana in the body. And go prove that maybe if by doing yoga, not only do we get some personal benefit, but maybe we help others. I think we have to be careful we don't become just selfish entities that it's all about me and me. And, oh, I don't want to do anything else in the day because I don't want to disturb my little prana bubble I've created from my practice. I'm just going to hold on to this good energy. No, go out there and share that good energy. If it's really that great, go out there and shine the light. Yeah, share the love. Mm. And so it, there's these moments where it might be necessary to be somewhat selfish. When you put ISH at the end of a word, it means pertaining to. Mm -hmm. So if pertaining to self is good. <clears throat> but if that's all it is, you know, it's like, why, why somebody go to Mysore? Well, you're teaching all the time. You're doing this stuff. Go there. Unplug. And, and then plug into the juice while there's all these other people doing it, get inspired, then go back to your community and become a productive citizen within the world where you live. Mm -hmm. David, I loved what you said about uh, kind of 98% of life is reaching a plateau, you know? And I feel like this is such a powerful teaching on, so, on a very, very deep level. And I'd love to unpack that a little bit because, you know, we talk about the, you know, craving for pleasure um, and aversion from pain so that we run towards pleasure. We reach a high and then what proceeds, you know, what, 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 um, you know, what follows after the high is the low. And then we get in this kind of ping pong cycle of the high and the low and the high and the low. And when you talked about the plateau, and have so much of life being in this kind of, you know, even keeled space where we think we're not making any progress, but actually we're in what is the real, you know, uh, state of yoga. I wanted to know um, what your plateau is like. What's the view from the plateau that you find yourself in now? It's kind of boring. Yeah. <laughs> it's maintenance. Mm hmm. Because my goal now is, how can I do this so that I can do everything else? Mm -hmm. The process is, I'll answer it another way. Someone once asked Mahatma Gandhi, what is your religion? 
Do you know what his answer to that question was? Mm, no. He said, you come live with me. Follow me. Listen to the words that come from my mouth. Look at the foods I eat. Look at the clothes I wear. See how I interact with other people and you will understand. So this is where the practice of yoga, rather than just put it in a little box and call it my asana practice, it needs to be reflected in everything else. And so even when I think of practicing yoga, I don't just think of, did I jump through or how many sun salutations did I do? Did I practice yoga during the rest of the day with all these other things I'm doing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not easy and it can be frustrating. And I'm just a human. I mean, I, I have frustrations about things. Like, I used to have long hair down to my waist, and now all I have is a giant <laughs> forehead. <laughs> you know, even physical, I mean, it's just the reality. I'm, you know, I'm aging. My body's aging. I can't do stuff I used to do, and I'm trying to gain a sense of humor about it. <laughs> and it's not always easy, but without it, am I just going to be that guy that does this big comb over like that to try to ignore the fact that I lost my hair? Or whatever. So yoga is, we're meant to try to deal with reality. But reality is not always savory and, or, or, you know, tasty. But it's the way to the truth. Mm-hmm. So if we can deal with the reality of what we're going through, and that's the, that's Svadhyaya, that's self study, to start looking and going like, yeah, you know, there's this glossed over thing I'm presenting to the world. And then there's the me over here that's, you know, hidden. But can we start taking from the practice when we're off the mat and the rest of our day? How are we, what are we doing? But we, we, there's a tendency to, to want things clearly defined. Like we have a, a definition of something. So the word Santosha, right? One of the yamas, niyamas. So this this point of bliss. Or, you know, we're thinking, you know, I want to get to samadhi. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe it's not for you guys, but it can be that we create some stereotype of what that person is. And it might be this person. Hmm. My head is never quite straight. <laughs> I have a half of a smile on my face, not even the whole one. I blink rather slowly. And when I speak, there's a hush to my voice because I am very peaceful. Namaste. That could be a peaceful person. I don't take that from them. However, have you ever heard the Dalai Lama speak? <laughs> is not that guy. He must know something about these things, right? Sometimes he's yelling. Sometimes he's laughing. Sometimes he's crying. And you alluded to this earlier that sometimes we have this idea that if I can just avoid difficulty, I'll be happy. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean avoiding difficulty and it doesn't mean aiming for it. It just means that whatever's happening, throw yourself wholeheartedly into it. The blissful, happy person 
is the lucky soul that have figured out their purpose in life. And that purpose, we should understand, evolves over time. If you've got children, your purpose is going to be one thing. If it's another phase, it's another thing. The Zen Buddha said, before enlightenment, I chopped wood and carried water. After enlightenment, I chopped wood and carried water. So what was the difference between one day and the next day? No longer does chopping wood and carrying water disturb my mind. So now we understand this is my purpose. This is like Arjuna becoming confused about being a warrior and then Krishna going, it's your duty. So once we figure out this is what I need to be doing, throw yourself into it. And the yoga practice is what facilitates and enables us to do that better. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I feel like in this state where people start to really fall in love with yoga, they seem to feel there's so many people that think that when they get to the place where, you know, they have this impetus to give back, then uh, immediately they think, well, I guess that means teaching. So then you have all these people that think, well, I guess I should teach. I guess I should teach. But I really like the way that you're talking about, you know, um, perhaps someone has a practice and the way that they're giving back is being a better parent or being more enlightened at their profession. I kind of feel like there starts to be almost an industry around turning people with enthusiasm into uh, you know, enthusiasm about yoga into teachers, you know? Um, and what do you think, like, what inspired you to start teaching? And how do you think someone, you know, can figure out if if that's the way that they should give back or if there's maybe another path within their life in which they can kind of, you know, craft a way to be of service to the world? There's a simple answer to the question of, how do I know I'm ready to teach? Mm-hmm. The answer is when you have students. <laughs> I never wanted to teach yoga, to be honest. I did not want to be a yoga teacher. <laughs> but one day somebody comes up and what do you and they say, What are you doing? I say yoga. They say, show me, and then you're a teacher. I'm not certified. I'm not authorized. I've never been to a teacher training course. Yeah. We should, there's nothing, I mean, mean, the world can have as many yoga, it doesn't matter, teach yoga. But yoga as a vocational choice is a kind of new thing. Even when I started teaching, I was a kid, like I was teaching, I was 16. My brother and I taught at night school classes in Houston, Texas. And then I, I started teaching with David Williams in Hawaii in 1976. Yeah. But you couldn't make a living teaching because it was just broke hippies doing yoga. (laughs) David Williams talks about teaching in the early days on Maui in the 70s. And he goes, well, I'd go to the park. I do my yoga. Somebody walk up and say, what are you doing? I'd say yoga. (laughs) And if you want to learn the yoga, you come here every morning. I'll teach you the yoga. He said, and I'd teach by donation. I put a hat under the mango tree. I'd say every day after I teach you the yoga, I want you to go and put a donation in the hat. He said, I'd teach for three hours. I went and looked in the hat and there was a banana, a mango and a joint. (laughs) Because that's what hippies had and they paid you with what they had. But at that time, David goes, 
that's all right. We live simply. We didn't need much. <laughs> In my own journey, when I started teaching, I couldn't make money doing it. So I've, I've been a waiter. I've done landscaping. I had an art gallery. I sold Honda cars. I, I built shelves and buildings. I did construction work. I did roofing to support the yoga teaching habit. Later, when mainstream people started doing yoga, people that had jobs, then you could make a living teaching yoga. So nothing wrong with teaching yoga, but understand that it's a process. Just because you step out of that school and you have your 500-hour training, then people are like, well, where are the students? You still got to go through the process and and teach, and there's one person or two people in class, and then there's five people in class, and there's nobody in class. And you know, it's a journey. It's a commitment if you're really going to do it and and take it you know, seriously. But I'd recommend if somebody wants to teach yoga, I say, don't stop all their sources of income. And honestly, become a substitute yoga teacher. <laughs> Every Ashtanga studio in the world needs substitute <laughs> teachers because Ashtanga teachers are the worst employees. They're like, wow, dude, man, I taught like three classes a week last month. I'm so stressed. I'm going to Mysore for six months and they're gone. So... <laughs> Just start picking up some classes, teach three, four or five classes a week. Great. But if you stop all sources of income and go, I want to be a yoga teacher, and you find yourself teaching 25, 30 classes a week, you start to resent it. Everybody around you is feeling great, but your own practice falls away and all that, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a, a myriad ways to give back. Yeah. And teaching yoga is a way, but we shouldn't discount simple acts of love and kindness open a door for someone pick up a piece of trash that we didn't drop on the street i'll tell you something that's really fun to do and it's in a way it's selfish because it makes you feel good i never do it at like whole foods or something <laughs> but, but i would do it in like normal grocery stores i just turn i just buy somebody's groceries that's in line I just say, I'll, I'll pay for their groceries. I never do it if there's alcohol or cigarettes. But if it looks like healthy stuff, I just go, I'll pay for their things. And, they, and I just walk away. And, it, and it's like, wow. And you know then that that's like dropping a pebble into a pool. That little ripple, that person is feeling like, wow, this person. And they're going to do something nice to somebody and for somebody else and somebody else these spontaneous acts of something like that can also be a reflection of how you give back. Mm -hmm. It doesn't even have to be a monetary thing. You know, it can just be, like I said, simple things exhibit some of these qualities of compassion toward others. And you really want to challenge yourself. And I'm not saying I'm good at this either, but, we yoga practitioners sometimes consider ourselves, oh, we're open-minded. We're so compassionate and we have open hearts. But you realize at some point, we're only that way when we're surrounded by everybody else that thinks like us. <laughs> Go and have an open mind, an open heart, and an open discussion with somebody that has polar opposite political views to you. Yeah? Or a butcher when you're a vegan or whatever i'm just saying like step outside of your comfort zone and see how you respond and react in, in situations 
with people that are different. If yoga means union, it doesn't mean just union of everybody that looks like, thinks alike, and wears Lululemon pants. <laughs> <laughs> That's a challenging, uh, you know, uh, I'm not people. saying I'm good yeah. at it either. You know, but, yeah. but it's a good way to test. Mm-hmm. How is this yoga working? Mm-hmm. Am I really maturing? Am I developing in such a way that I can function outside of my little box of familiarity? Mm-hmm. I really think it's humbling uh, that you shared all the different jobs that you had to support, you know, to support the practice. There are so many people that like, you know, won't take some job or any job. They'll say, oh, it's beneath me now. You know, I'm this, you know, spiritual person. I can't work construction or I refuse to be a waitress. It's depressing. I, I, you know, refuse to work construction because it's beneath me or something like that. And I think it's really humbling and important that you shared, you know, um, other different professions that you were. Well, I will say that all those people you just mentioned, they must have had some source of income to get food <laughs> and pay their rent because my motivation was, <laughs> I got to feed myself and pay the rent and I can't pay it with apples and bananas from the hippies. <laughs> but I will also, I give credit to my parents and a Southern work ethic. Mm-hmm. I was raised that you work hard mm-hmm. and, and I have always given respect to people that work hard. You know, people look down their nose, man, you go out there and try that job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so it, it's good for your soul to do things that are dirty and hard and clean toilets. And you know what I mean? Like do real work that, that makes you appreciate, wow, I get to teach yoga. Great. Mm -hmm. But, but we shouldn't, you know, some other way to feed that thing of, you know, somebody gets a piece of paper that says they're a yoga teacher and all of a sudden they're like, yeah, the world owes them something, man. You're just a yoga teacher. Lighten up. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be healthy to have some other kind of jobs because you're going to start appreciating, you know, that that checkout person at Target. The job they're working is not easy. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, how how are you going to apply your yoga when you're working in the stock room at the grocery store mm-hmm. instead of, you know, standing in front of people, you know, and we can dazzle them with our asanas or whatever. Right. but get down in there and and work other kinds of jobs and it'll broaden your perspective. It builds character and it makes mm-hmm. you appreciate things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Work a job where they don't care if your leg is behind your head or not. No. And then, you know, see if you can still show up and maintain yogic values in that moment, you know? And um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's a really, really, really good point and a really good place of, uh, humility for many people who think, well, now I'm going to, you know, support myself and I'm just going to be a full-time yoga teacher. And at the same time, David, you work really hard, even to this day. Like, look at you, you're having this conversation in your hotel room. You've, you know, are inspiring in the way that you travel and teach and devote your free time to writing a new book and have been a pioneer in the Ashtanga method with writing books and making videos to share the practice with people. So, you know, you're a really special human being in that way. Other people don't have that work ethic or that enthusiasm that, you know, uh, that you bring. And I think that's, that's a gift that you have. And it's, it's been a benefit to so many students, including myself. 
I mean, work. It's important to work. But Tommy <laughs> Joyce worked hard. He you know did. I mean? it's like you work yeah. hard. Uh-huh. You know, you work hard, and it, it it feels good. And it's not always easy, but it makes you appreciate small things. Mm-hmm. Imagine the difference of someone who is born into a family of wealth that never has to work, mm-hmm. and they have a beautiful life. Even their first car they ever got was a really nice car and they've always had good clothes and they fly in first class and they never have to really work hard. And then there's another person who had very little or nothing then to work hard their whole life and they, they, they get someone. You can have a different appreciation of what it takes to, to get something, right? Mm-hmm. And so even the the hardships of teaching yoga. I taught for 20 years before I made any money doing it. (laughs) For 10 years, I traveled around the world and slept on the yoga room floor at night. And when I made enough money, I bought an airplane ticket to the next place. And that's how (laughs) I lived. And, and it just makes you really appreciate things. I had a mantra and my, you know, mantra is a little exaggeration, but I always said to myself, one is a class. Mm-hmm. If one person shows up, I have to give them enthusiasm, energy, mm-hmm. and heart, the same as if the room is full. Because my idea was, if I do that, and that person enjoyed the class, they might tell their friend, and next time I'll have two people in class. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've stuck with that, that no matter how many people are in there, I'm going to come in there like that. Mm-hmm. And and it, it makes you feel good, too, because think about it. That person is feeling like they're lame. They're the only one in class. Like, whoa, what's happening here? I'm the only one in here, man. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's developing an appreciation mm-hmm. to be able to work hard. Yeah. You know? And, and uh, David, I feel like you, you know, during the pandemic, whenever we had an online class with you, you saw that enthusiasm come through and you continued to give of yourself. And now that we're kind of, you know, seeing COVID in our rearview mirror, then here you are still with the enthusiasm, still traveling. And I think that's so inspirational. And I just encourage everyone to come and go and take a class with you and check out your teachings online and, and get in line to, to buy that book when it comes out. Um, and Kino, you know those classes I was teaching for you on Zoom when I was on Maui? It was 2.30 in the morning. And- <laughs> <laughs> that only shows how hard worker you are, you know? I talked to, we talked to people who were in, you know, in, in Asia and said, Hey, would you want to teach a class? Oh no, it's a, I can't with the time zone. You know, it's just, it's too, it's too much, but you never said that. You're like, all right, no. let me get up in the middle of the night. No problem. I'll just get on and we hope the internet works. This is, you know, it was, it was really great. The internet, yeah. Around. That was a problem. All of a sudden you'd be like, whoop, whoop. yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> you'd get frozen, frozen you just hope, yeah yeah hope that the frozen image is a yeah. good one right, exactly <laughs> um david you know i think it's really i heard you say once that you are a teacher but you don't have students and and like you know someone comes into the class but you don't have like ownership of the students you know so sometimes particularly in ashtanga we have this thing where someone so this is my student and we get like almost like you know there's this I don't want to say possessiveness, but there's this kind of feeling like I taught you this and you're my student and don't go over here and don't go over there. Um, 
And at the same time, you know, if you're, if you are, um, and neither you or I teach like this, I did for a while. And it sounds like you did too, where you're the person who shows up day in and day out, you know, six days a week for two or three hours. And you keep that consistency. It gives, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a different, it's a, it's a very different uh, relationship than if you teach a workshop or do an immersion or something like that. So at, and students get very attached to their teachers, especially that daily teacher that they're going to see every day. And in any relationship, there are often, you know, times when everything is harmonious. And then there are times when things are not harmonious. For example, maybe, I don't know if you've had this, but I've had this numerous times that I'm working with a student and I see them, maybe they've come to a few retreats or maybe it was in the period where I was teaching every day, six days a week. And then, you know, I've got them on a program. And this actually, this actually specifically happened with me. I had the student on a program and then I reached a point where I was like, you need to be at your plateau for a little bit. I want you to be at a plateau. You know, I wanted them. I was like, you've gotten a lot of poses. I, I feel like what's best is if we just stay at the plateau for a little bit, but this student, they didn't want to stay at the plateau. They were just like, I want more poses. And then they went, they found another teacher that gave them like a lot of poses. And this happened numerous times, you know, and I'm wondering how do you negotiate that? You know, like I, know I might've been the guy that gave them a lot of poses. <laughs> I know hundred percent. It wasn't you. I actually know it, it, it actually put me in a strange spot because the person that they went to was a friend of mine. And I was a little bit like, buddy, you're my friend. And then, and then, um, and then I didn't want to, you know, and challenge my friend's authority because we're kind of, I, I felt like, well, we're, you know, equals uh, in terms of teachers on the path. At the same time, I also felt like, gosh, maybe I'm not this student's teacher anymore. But at the same, it's just, it's just this like weird spot. I know you teach, you also teach a month in Maui, right? So you have people yeah. that come for a month. How do you negotiate well, I'll, that? I'll, I'll address the thing. I'll, I'll address the thing about giving asanas. I give a lot of asanas because I let the yoga do the talking. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you a story about my wife, Shelly. Some of you have met Shelly. When Shelly was a little girl, her grandfather, Papa Sam, took Shelly and her sister to like the little carnival, you know, or something where there's rides and stuff. And they, they, there's this ice cream stand and they were little ice cream cones. But so Papa Sam her grandpa could eat three ice cream cones. And Shelly said, Papa Sam, I want three. I won't be like you. I want three ice creams, Papa Sam. And Papa Sam says, honey, sure, you can have to. Why don't I just get you one first? And if you eat that, I'll get you another. No, I want three like you. So he bought her three and set them in front of her. And she <laughs> ate the first one like, yeah. And the second one, she was like, bleh, bleh. And by the third one, she's like, bleh. And so I think of asanas like that. Somebody goes, I want advanced series. I just say, okay, buckle up. I just start giving them advanced series postures until they're like, I don't want to do this. And I say, okay, because the yoga will tell you. Yeah, that, that's my approach to it, right? But I know that's contrary to how other people, the way asanas are given. It wasn't really that way in the early time. It was your ability and your endurance that told you when to stop because Patabi Joyce would give us five, six, seven postures a day. I mean, just wheelbarrows full until you're like, no, yeah, you take and there's more postures. But that's because there were four people in Mysore mm -hmm. and he had all day. We were his playthings. You know? mm -hmm. 
Um, and as far as on Maui, there is a there, but David, right there, there is something there. So there's four of you, and Patabidris is there, and he's giving you all these asanas, and he's like, he's going to physically help you with them all, you know. So he's like, okay, I'm I'm present with these four students. If you've got 20 students, and then those 20 students are like, I want all these asanas, I can't do any of them. So you have to help me with all of this. This is this is actually something interesting that that happened with me is that I had a student that was doing primary series and she'd been practicing for like, I don't know, a year, year and a half. And then maybe this was like years ago and I'd taken her into second series. She said she really wanted to do it. I started teaching her second series. She went away on a trip and and came back and she had and it wasn't with you. And she had and then she then she's like, now I'm doing second series. But she couldn't do any of the second series poses. So I needed to physically help her in all, every single asana. And I was just like, hey, I didn't, this is not my contract. I didn't take this on. I got 30 other students that I need to help. I can't help you in all these asanas. If we can just go back to what I can handle, then great. But I just physically couldn't help her in every single asana. What do you well, do in a situation well, like you, that? I tell you where I stop people. I don't stop people because of lack of a lack of flexibility or something. I stop people. What I look for is integrity of practice. Mm -hmm. That means they're able to focus and their breath is still good mm -hmm. and they have some kind of flow. When the breath becomes ragged, I stop them. Mm -hmm. So somebody like you're talking about their, their postures, there was a to Maui once. She was doing like advanced, advanced A. And, you know, Keo, these postures are hard. Like those, <laughs> that sequence up on your arms, right? <sighs> well, she was holding them for two breaths or one breath. And I go, you got to hold these five breaths before you go to the next posture. Mm -hmm. And I started stripping away postures until she got to something she could hold for five breaths. And it was in primary series. Mm. So I let, I let it be the breath. I go, you can go as long as you can when you can rest, but you can't just like hit and run. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's another story that was in Costa Rica. I was in Costa Rica and there was a uh, a bird watcher there on staff and he loved birds. He was passionate about it. And and there were a couple other people there that were bird watchers. And bird watchers have a life list of birds that they've seen in their life. They they keep like a a, a ledger, mm. yeah. And they'll they'll write down, I saw the yellow-tipped, you know, warbler, whatever bird. And they're fascinated by that. <clears throat> and they generally love birds. Well, this guy that was the, the bird watcher, um, he had this scope and he had it focused up in a tree. And he goes, wow, look, this is this such and such bird. It's so beautiful. And one woman goes, I've already seen one of those. Right? She was a bird watcher because she just wanted to tick the, off the names on the list, but she didn't love birds. Mm -hmm. Where this other guy, he could see that same bird a thousand times and see the beauty in it. So the person you're talking about, it, they're just ticking off asanas. They don't really love it. It's just a game, like tick, 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 tick. Yeah, I could see what you mean. Yeah. And so, Kino, it, it's not easy. And at some point, as the teacher, you just have to have the people in the room that you want there. Mm -hmm. And without being you can say, you know what, maybe this just isn't the right relationship. I respect that you want to do that. And that's great. And I'm happy for you. And I, I, I wish you the best, mm -hmm. but I think I'm just not the right teacher for you. Mm -hmm. 
And if they freak out or something, go, but think about it. As a student, if I, I come to your class and I pay you that class fee, that means I am saying, I want your advice. I've paid you for your advice. And then I can't say, I don't want your advice. So mm -hmm. the fact that we teach differently, that's okay, right? But the, the student needs to respect the teacher. Mm -hmm. And it's, this is something I find fascinating. It's only in yoga that this happens. You would never do this kind of thing with your piano teacher. I don't play C-sharp chords. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't want to do scales anymore. I want to play Bach. You know, no, no, I just want to play that. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that with your martial arts teacher. You wouldn't do it with your painting teacher. You wouldn't do it with anything else. But somehow in yoga, people are like all of a sudden, because it's yoga, they think it's not a discipline. I go, this is a discipline. And now the teacher teaches differently, but the way that that teacher is teaching is what you got to follow or don't go to their class, right? Mm -hmm. So in your class setting, like... Uh, if I go to someone else's class, I will do anything they tell, tell yeah. me with the exception of one thing. And that one thing is if I think something will hurt me, I'll be yeah. respectful, but I won't do it. Yeah, that's and fair so enough. The, the students need to be to understand that it's a discipline and, and the teacher is the teacher and you're the student. It doesn't mean you can't have fun and everything, but mm -hmm. it's also it's not fair to other people. If you're just going to do your own thing. So you have your criteria and you feel like they should be on this plateau. And so if you're in your piano teacher and the piano teacher is saying, I think you need to stay on this song and they're going, no. Or your martial arts teacher going, no, I want to do that black belt form. They'll just point at the door and say, see ya. <laughs> but in yoga, people feel like they can just kind of do their own thing. It's a really, you know, I think it's a super good point. And, you know, something that I think it, it has subtlety and has nuance because we're in this age of, you know, increased agency and how does that intersect with the discipline of respecting the teacher? And I really love the way that you said, you know, if I'm in a, in a, if I'm in a class, I'll do anything that the teacher says with the one exception, if I think it's going to hurt myself. And then, you know, I think that's a, that's a really clear line. Look, if this is going to hurt me, then uh, that's a that's a clear you know that's a clear line and then if you decide look I don't like the energy of that class you don't have to go back but when you're you know when you're there that one time and you think or 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 those 10 times or even like years then when you're there if we're constantly in this antagonistic relationship <laughs> saying you know I don't want to do this why am I here I don't want to do this I want to do that and we're just it, it it's it's a it's it's an it's an interesting space to to contemplate to think about um, I can share for myself personally as a student, there are so many things that I don't want to do <laughs> just and just because I feel like I think it's crazy. I think I'll never be able to do that. All those advanced poses you were talking about, David, for me, when I look at them, I just feel like, no, it's not for me. And the only reason I'm even doing the advanced poses is because, you know, Patabi Joyce and Jarad, they told me do them. And my first reaction was, yeah, I don't think so. Um, I, this is just not going to happen. And then they said, try. And out of only respect for them, I tried. And I did think, am I going to hurt myself? And I even shared that at some moment. I said, I think I'm going to hurt myself in this. And they said, why don't you try once before you, you know, before you decide? And I was fine. And, you know, I think that um, it's important to keep that uh, notion of when do I think I'm going to hurt myself? Because 
you know, that, and it can be psychologically, it can be emotionally, it can be physically. And then that, that allows us to make a distinction that someone's bringing up in regards to, you know, the piano teacher saying you need to stay rehearsing that one song versus, you know, your your yoga teacher saying you need to stay at this pose as because there, there's more harm that can be done to the body, you know, when we're trying to put our legs behind our head or whatnot versus playing a song on a piano. But the, but the, the that, that hard line of empowering the student to be able to say, I'd like to try, but I think I'm going to hurt myself. And then to respectfully decline. I feel like that's a really good space to maintain the student's agency while at the same time to respect the tradition. So um, what advice do you have? The other, the other side of it is the student that doesn't want more asanas. Right. And the teachers, definitely me. you should do intermediate series. And they're yeah. like, I don't want to. Yeah. And, and the teacher's putting on like, but that person is lucky. Yeah. Satisfied with what they have. It's like somebody that has X number of money and you're going, but you need more money, but you need more money, but I'm happy with what I've got. No, no, no. You need two cars, Mm -hmm. whatever. But so again, I just think we're there to facilitate the practice. Yeah. And it's going to be different for everybody. Encourage, inspire, facilitate practice. And as a yoga teacher, there's a bit of psychology. There's a bit mm-hmm. of like trying to understand the psyche of this person. Some people, maybe you try to encourage them to move on. There's the racehorses that I'm like, they're the ones like, arr, arr. you don't want to stomp their enthusiasm, but you want to keep them safe. And there's all that. And then there's the students that think their yoga teacher should also be their financial advisor, <laughs> medical counselor, <laughs> spiritual. You're like, dude, I'm just a yoga teacher, man. I can't fix all your problems. Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for students that find themselves in that scenario? So say you're the student and you're in a plateau that you don't want to be in. And you're there thinking, man, if my teacher would just give me advanced, then I'd be happy. And then like, you know, what, what advice do you have for students? That are in, I've been there as a student in that plateau thinking like, you know, not in the advanced poses, but in other poses. I, I'm, I'm different though, in that I would just encourage them to ask me. Mm-hmm. If you want more poses, I'll say, okay, I'll just start giving them more poses, but then I'll make them hold them for five breaths. <laughs> and then that, that slows the thing down. Sometimes, sometimes you give people what they want yeah, and, and let them find out. Yeah. Um, and then they're in the plateau and they're still not, not happy always, about it, <laughs> but it's not always the same answer, mm-hmm. right? The one student you're 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 reading the the psyche and you're giving them more and another person may so it's it's like a a dance that you're doing because our our ultimate goal as teachers should be how can we encourage these people to practice the rest of their life you know? mm-hmm. yeah and the the way that you're going to teach in your room Kino is the way that you believe in you feel strong in it's it's your heart and soul and what you believe and it's important to carry that as a mm-hmm. teacher we can't do anything else other than that i'm saying you you have to yeah. right and so it, it, it's okay because there's so many different kind of personalities that means there's so many different kind of teachers there's not one answer here for every teacher mm-hmm. right? you, you have to find how you want to teach the class yeah yeah and then what about the students? You know, what, 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 what advice do you have from the student's perspective? How can the students show up in such a way to be respectful of the teacher and the practice? Be a student. Mm-hmm. A student means you're there to learn, to listen, to learn. And 
I mean, this could get into the whole conversation of, you know, I think that too much power is in the hand of the teacher, but this comes back under the umbrella of, of paradox. I think when I'm in a class teaching, I think of myself as the servant of the students. I'm not a master. I'm the servant. I even joked that in a Mysore class, I'm an asana waiter. Yeah. <laughs> mat number seven needs Murchasana D. You know, run over to mat number seven. There's Murchasana D. Oh, mat number number nine. Dvipadashashasana. You know, you're just delivering asanas around the, the dining room, you know, but I'm there to serve them. I'm I'm the server. I'm not some master. However, students should not abuse that either by just being disrespectful to the teacher. So it's, it's this little bit of a dance, right? There's, mm -hmm. there's two, this relationship, but then the, the teacher should not abuse their power or let it start going to their head, you know, that you hurt somebody and you go, oh, that's an opening. Great. You know, mm. so it, it, it's a, a, a process. And as a student, it, it's tricky. I'm not a fan of like surrender a hundred percent to someone. Mm-hmm. I'd say listen to the person, follow what they're doing, but when it feels like the danger zone, whether that's psychological danger, physical danger, inappropriate, touching danger, whatever it is, leave the scene, find mm -hmm. another teacher, or speak up to the teacher. I think it's important also to empower students to know they have a voice. I say it before every Mysore class I've, I've taught. Yeah. And I'm here in London teaching at Scott Johnson's studio, Still Point Yoga, mm -hmm. doing some Mysore classes in the morning this week. And nice. before the class, I say, okay, it's a Mysore style class. If there's something you want help with and I don't see that, you get my attention, I come and help you. If I come to help you with the posture and you don't want the help, you tell me to go away. Mm -hmm. I put it up and I say it multiple times to empower the students so they understand they have a voice because, oh, David, but the students, too shy to say something and go, but that's the problem. Mm -hmm. Don't make the teacher this scary person you can't communicate with. Yep. But at Absolutely. the same time, the student needs to respect the, the, the teacher. Yeah, I'm there to help you. But mm -hmm. just because I delivered your water, you can't like spit in my face or throw the lemon wedge yeah. at the table, right? <laughs> I mean, there's, there's two yeah. sides of it. Absolutely. I love that. And I think, um, you know, just to illustrate maybe the evolution in the Ashtanga practice now at the new Shala in, in Mysore, there are cards, there are consent cards. One says I'm yeah. injured. One says I'm pregnant. One says I don't need help today. Um, Tim said he's going to take the, um, pregnancy card the next time he goes <laughs> just as a joke, you know, but, um, um, but before we were just talking about this, Tim and I were talking about this actually with Sharat while he was here that in the Gokulam Shala, we remember a time that, um, we were, we were waiting to do pranam after practice and we saw a man standing on his mat and he had his hands like this. He was about to start and Patabi Joyce got a little confused about, you know, who was doing backbends because there were a line of people with their hands like this and he just helped someone with backbends. It was like, you know, sometimes there's like a factory, like you're talking right. about being that asana waiter. Sometimes it's like, I got to deliver backbend, 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 backbend. So Patabi Joyce was just going like backbend, backbend. Well, he went up to the guy with the hands in prayer and he put his hands on his waist and he said, you go back. And the guy hadn't done any sun salutations and he was too scared to say anything. So he just went like, ah! And then he threw himself back and then he came up and then Sharat said, Appa, no, 
And then they had a whole conversation about he's only done Surya Namaskar. And then Patavi Joyce left him and just walked away. And the guy was like, all right, back to Surya Namaskar A. Here I go. And so it's changed. You know what I mean? This is he didn't feel this guy didn't feel he was too scared to say, no, you know, I'm I'm not ready for backbends. I've got to do my practice first. And and that's sometimes I mean, it it might be okay if it if it's going to work out right <laughs> no Gruji, i'm just starting but yeah but remember patabi joyce didn't really speak english so even if you said that he might be like yes you do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. still didn't translate somehow <laughs> yeah and that was the funny thing of his conferences people would ask him these big convoluted questions and you know like yeah well did he really understand the question and are we going to understand the answer it was a David Williams, when Patabi Joyce first came to America, was his interpreter, but Patabi Joyce oh. was speaking in English. <laughs> David, and we're basically getting David Williams' idea of life, you know. He's, but, <laughs> you know, think, and the thing with the cards, years, a few years ago when that was first coming out, there was this meeting of teachers, and I just happened to be, it was a dinner, and everybody's talking about it, and they were saying, oh, these cards, it empowers the students. But I disagreed. I said, no, it doesn't. It enables the student. It enables this attitude. No, no, no. It empowers them to put this card. Then I go, but that's, is not the practice of yoga training for life. The mat is our laboratory. It's a little microcosm of life. How do we deal with postures we like? How do we deal with ones we hate? How are we going to interact with this teacher? What that card tells me is this: the teacher is far too elevated and big and scary to even say a word to. Mm-hmm. At best, I can hope for is I put this card on my mat and maybe they won't abuse me. Mm-hmm. And they go, no, David, you're getting it wrong because students are, in, they're not confident enough to say something to the teacher and go, but that's the problem. If you're mm-hmm. training these people for life, and it has to come sin- sincerely from the teacher, mm-hmm. too. I could say that. The teacher has to also be sincere and going, it's okay if you say no, but a lot of teachers won't allow you to say that word to them. Mm-hmm. It's I hear okay you. just say, no, I don't want help. Mm-hmm. Then you do away with the need for the card. But I say, if this is training for life, what is that person going to do out there on the street? Somebody's abusive to them. They carry this little card in their back pocket and <laughs> wave it to the person. From, no, 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 look, you can't speak ill to me. I have this little card here. Mm-hmm. It's training to stand up, whoever the teacher is. I hear you. Just to be able to say no. Now, maybe the card is a bridge. Maybe it's a hybrid between one thing and the next. And maybe it was a reaction to stuff that was going on. But in the bigger picture, I think it's a handicap. Mm-hmm. I see what but, you're saying. I totally but, see but what you're saying. Change also isn't going to come in a moment. So I think mm-hmm. we have to say over and over and over, you, it's okay to speak up to the teacher. It's okay to speak up to the teacher. However. The pendulum can swing so high is right. If all the student is ever saying to the teacher is no, then right. maybe they need to go to another teacher. That's a good point too. Right. I, I gotta say, from the from my perspective, sometimes like the pregnancy card and the injury card, sometimes I, I, that's helpful for me because I gotta say, not everybody looks pregnant when they're pregnant, and then I can. Well, forget. it's also bad to ask somebody if they're pregnant. Yeah, that's the other, pregnant, yeah. So. You don't want to really be like, are you? <laughs> you know, no, so I'm, from, I'm not saying there's no place for it. And yeah. I think those cards are different than the one that says, yeah, I don't need help. Don't adjust me or something. Yeah. 
I mean, if there's, if it's a group of people I don't know, Mm -hmm. I'll say, are there any injuries or special conditions I should know about? Mm -hmm. And if you don't want to announce it to the group, tell, tell it to me when I come up there. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it, it does save a lot of time if, if there's, 20 people have this stuff they got to tell you and it's okay. I understand that circumstance that somebody's knee is hurting or something, but if I come up to make an adjustment, all they have to say is my knees, but okay. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, I explained to them, you're not going to have to like justify your saying no. Yeah. I'm just going to say, okay. And walk away. Yeah. It'll make you explain yourself. It's like mm-hmm. you don't want an adjustment. Fine. But everything's okay. The cards are okay. I'm just Mm -hmm. giving my own opinion. I'm starting to feel like the old grandpa, you know. (laughs) "Ah, That's not how we did it. (laughs) I like that idea of the waiter, though, because, you know, I don't know if you've ever had that, but sometimes, you know, the waiter comes to bring something to your table and you don't want it. You don't need to put like a card on the table that says, you know, no extra water. They come with some weird stuff you don't want on the table. You just say, oh, no, thanks. Like You you can also say, Wow, my oatmeal's not cooked, you know, or whatever, right? Like you right. can yeah. complain about the food if it's bad food. Yeah. This is, I think, I think a really uh just important point to to really illustrate that we all need teachers and students and when whatever role we're in to be empowered to continue to do the deep inner work of thinking. And that's one of the things like I continue to really love and be inspired about your presence and your teaching in the Ashtanga world is you constantly uh inspire people to think for themselves. Um, and the way that you teach, you know, uh, the practice gives space for people to come to their own conclusions about things. And I love that. So, um, David, do you want to share a little bit about, um, where people can find you in person and, um, online? So if they want Tomorrow to be in morning, that space. You can find me at still point yoga at the, the guy's hospital campus here in London. <laughs> Nadia, I'll see you there. There's Nadia. She's going to be there. Um, you know, you, I have to look on my website to see. So, <laughs> so they can find on your website. I'm, I'm Remind everyone of your website. I'll be in Amsterdam this weekend doing a workshop and then some Mysore classes there. Then I'll be in Naples, Italy, doing a training and a workshop. I will be at Miami Life Center in September. We look and, forward um, to that. Also, just on a side note, if we're giving plugs for things. Um, so I've had this video content that was digitized all my original stuff starting from back in the 90s the videos and all those things i've had hosting on my website and only just recently did we shift everything over to Hino's capable hands and her team of people at own stars that are now hosting all going to host all of my digital content and all that original content it's just going to be available yeah and I also have a lot of new videos, like 70 of them coming out soon that will be, it won't be a secret, but there's this transition. So we're going to have some sort of a, a partnering relationship here because I'm horrible with social media. I have Instagram and Facebook. I have not put anything on there for three years. <laughs> the last thing I put on there was Shelly and I picked some oranges and it was <laughs> February of 2020 or something, right? Like, and so, um, Kino's going to help me with that because she's expert at, at <laughs> those things and has a team of people. And, and so thank you for that. And um, I've written a book that hopefully will be coming out before too much longer. Um, and 
it's sort of a secret. Some of you already know it, but if you just promise not to put it out on social media and tell other people, I'll tell you the title of my book right now. Yeah, you promise? Like, you know, everybody give pinky, a thumbs pinky. up or pinky. Give a, give a pinky swear. Okay. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'm gonna let I'm gonna let people I'll have let you have three guesses. If you already know the title, don't tell everybody. You get three <laughs> guesses of what the title of my book might be. Anybody want to guess? You could type it in there or or just unmute for a second and say something. Anybody want to guess? Let's see. Is there something in the chat? No guesses uh, yet. No guesses. Okay. Nobody's nobody wants oh, to. Someone wrote the world according to Swenson. <laughs> I'm changing the title. <laughs> <laughs> oh, someone else wrote Yoga of the Caveman. Uh, oh, and Gabrielle has a nice title. Yoga is my medicine. Nice. The title is Only Dead Fish Go With the Flow. <laughs> that is the actual title of my book. Maybe you need to say Only it again. People fish. look stunned. Only Dead Fish Go With the Flow. And this is a little bit of the thing, like <clears throat> all the yoga people say, just go with the flow, man. But I'm like, if you're a salmon, you can't say go with the flow, dude. Yeah. And it it has a very long subtitle, which is on purpose. Um, <laughs> it is only dead fish go with the flow. My fantastic, sometimes clumsy, often humorous, occasionally frightening, always sincere and possibly inspiring tales of living life in pursuit of my dream dreams. <laughs> And I'm going to see if you can see the cover. I'm going to try to hold it up to the camera. Wait, is it there? Yes. Oh, no, a little closer. A little further away. Ah, there it is. Now it's in focus. Still the fish. I'm the red fish. <laughs> nice. Swimming the other way from all the other fishes. People say they like the cover. What's that? People say they like the cover. Yeah, they're just saying that because the they're trying to make me feel okay. <laughs> I'll even read you the first page of the book. Yeah, we'd love that. All the chapters are really short because as a reader, I like short chapters because it makes me feel accomplished. You know, you read like four yeah. page chapters and you're like, Read a okay. chapter. So absolutely. I hear you on that. The the first the first one, the first chapter is called Aliens Exist. Aliens exist. I should know since I am one myself, or at least have felt like one for most of my life. I've always had the sense that I somehow wasn't meant for this world. Maybe there was a mistake in the celestial paperwork that landed me here. But from a young age, I never felt as if I quite fit in. I grew up in Texas where sports are religion, guns are accessories, politics are red, minds are set, and being different is discouraged. I always swam against that current of perceived norm, which at times hasn't been an easy task. But I've discovered things upstream that I would never have found had I simply gone with the flow. I've come to love my life with all of its crazy twists turns, dead ends, epiphanies, quests, struggles, successes, failures, joys, and sorrows. 
So maybe I was born on the right planet after all. Maybe all of us feel like alien visitors passing through trying to find our way. Maybe you'll find encouragement in my story to pursue your own path and to take chances that will allow you to discover magic and deep potential upstream that far exceeds your previous expectations. At least I hope that you are entertained by my clumsy yet enthusiastic attempts to seek deeper meaning in a crazy world. <laughs> now it. they want to know, when is it coming out? I want to know that too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm self-published and it's, I started this at the beginning of COVID and it's very close, but even if I told the printer tomorrow, print the books, it would still be like four months from now. So I won't keep it a secret. And even Tino and the crew over there have agreed to help me, you know, promote things because mm -hmm. otherwise no one will even know it's printed if I do it by myself. <laughs> <laughs> So we look forward to when that's coming out so we can help spread the word. Yeah. And I think everybody here is already ready to pre-order a copy. <laughs> well, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to have a lot of copies of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> so, Kino, this well, has been really fun. I, I appreciate your, your hosting this. And thanks to all of you for coming out here and spending time with us for this you know, it was fun. It was inspiring. It was, it was a, a good, good discussion. Yeah. I've really enjoyed it, David. You're always really inspiring. We re appreciate you and respect you so much. And, um, thanks for coming on with the time difference and, uh, enjoy London. And I look forward to seeing you hopefully again, real soon. And we're going to see you in September. Yes. September in Miami. Look forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> and rest of you see you down the road or, um, wherever. Thank you very much. Love, respect. You know, it could be fun. I always like to do this at the end of Zoom classes. Uh huh. It's kind of for my own entertainment. Everyone unmute and give I a shout that. out to each other. Just un everybody it. unmute and just give a shout out to everybody else here. A big cacophonous, Yay! noisy sound. Hey, <laughs> nobody's unmuting. Come on. Uh, maybe they're not allowed to. Hold on. Oh, they can't. Can you allow them? No, I'm going to try. Oh. Maybe they're trying and they can't. Hold on. Let me see if I can. Uh, I'm, I can do it. Try now, everyone. Everyone. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you. 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 Thank Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. 
So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.